Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. We began a series uh, last Sunday going through the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to be in Ephesians for a while. We're kind of doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians was, of course, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very unique city. It was a large city. It was very populous. It had a lot of wealth. It was a port city, so a lot of uh, merchandise and and, and, uh, markets came through there. A lot of people would come through there to go to other large cities. It was a complex city. But the main thing about Ephesus was it was known for its sensuality and sinfulness. It was a very sinful city. Ephesus had the largest temple to Diana, the goddess of love or the goddess of sex in the, in the world. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was such a large temple. And this temple didn't just serve as a place of worship. It also served as a house of prostitution. So it was a very wicked, sinful city. But it also had a very large and growing Christian, Christian, member, Christian uh, force in there. The Christian church had been established through the Apostle Paul and his second missionary journey. And he comes back and he, he preaches there and he ministers there and he teaches there and he disciples there. And he gets some church leaders raised up and he brings Timothy in to take the church. And so now this Christian movement is very large and it's very growing. And, and it's causing some issues in Ephesus because the leaders of the city and the wealthy people of the city, they view this Christian movement as dangerous because they are getting people away away from the idol worship and away from the sensuality and the sinfulness. And so it's hurting their profit. And so the church is facing some persecution. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage these new believers because a lot of them are struggling with the persecution they're facing. They're kind of struggling with who they really are, what they really, really, really fit in the culture. And so Paul writes this to encourage them about who they are in Christ, but also to challenge them about how they should live for Christ. If you Google the term identity crisis, this is the first definition you get. A period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure. Uncertainty and confusion. There is nothing that describes our society or our culture better than these words. We live in a society full of uncertainty and confusion. And our culture just kind of helps that along and encourages that and strengthens that. And so we are a people defined by uncertainty and confusion about who we are. I mean, we even have debates going on in our, in our public schools about what gender people can identify as because they're confused about what to identify with. And so we have that, and we don't have society standing up or leaders standing up saying, no, this is where you were born and this is what you are. They say, well, we just, 
we don't know how they feel and we don't know what they look like or how they really feel about themselves, so we'll let them decide. And so it causes confusion and uncertainty and it's just continuing to go on in our society. But sadly, that defines how many Christians feel about ourselves as well, mainly with our relationship with God. One certain about where we stand with God. We're insecure about how God views us or how God loves us or what God wants to do with us. And so where does all this confusion and uncertainty come from? Well, one of the reasons is because of the decisions that we have made in our past, especially as a society. Fifty years ago, there was a Supreme Court case called Epperson versus Arkansas. Now, you may not have ever heard of Epperson versus Arkansas, but this was the landmark case that opened up the floodgates for evolution to be taught in public schools as an explanation of where we came from as opposed to creation. So for 50 years, our children have been taught that we are the result of a great cosmic mistake instead of being created in the image and likeness of God. And when we teach them that, we're teaching them that since we're all just here because of a, a great big coincidence, then life really has no significance. Life has no purpose. We're just a coincidence, not a purposeful, purposeful creation. That's why Paul said in Romans 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We have made decisions in our past that have eroded our sense of identity. But it's not just from our past, it's also from our present as well. You know, the phenomenon of, of social, social media has done incredible damage to our sense of identity. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, they, they damage our view of ourself. Because when people go to social media and they post on social media, they, they don't post their real life. They post the best of what it is, or most of it's make-believe, trying to make people think they have a good life, and then... If you don't get enough likes, then it, it hurts yourself. That's why even Instagram has gone toward the effort. They've, they've realized this, and they're taking away the, the public likes. So peop, other people don't know how many likes you got. So they can't view you less because, oh, you only got five likes. This person got 75 likes, so they're a better person. It, it damages our sense of self. It, it, it teaches us to, to view ourselves in a different way. And a recent study showed that the average adult spends four hours a day on social media. The average kid and teen spends up to nine hours a day on social media. Look at what psychologist Jim Taylor said. He says, social media has caused us to shift away from expressing our self-identities and toward constructing facades based on the answers to these questions. How will others look, how will others look at me? And how can I ensure that others view me positively? The goal for many now in their use of social media becomes how they can curry acceptance, popularity, status, and by extension, self-esteem through, the, through their profiles and postings. We come to see our identities as those we would like to have or that we want people to see rather than who we really are. So we've spent a generation teaching ourselves we came from nothing and go to nothing, so we are nothing. Add to that the culture that we are constantly trying to create this perfect image so everyone thinks we have it all together. And because of that, we are facing an identity crisis. We have lost an understanding of who we are. 
Now the good news is, in the midst of all of this uncertainty about who we are, as a child of God, God's word tells us who we are. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, the greatest thing that we can do, the greatest thing that can happen to us is for us to see ourselves as God sees us. So tonight, we're going to look at one verse of scripture, and we're going to begin to see how God sees us. Now, we're going to look at verse number three in Ephesians chapter one, but for verse three, all the way through verse 14 is one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. Paul decided not to use any commas or punctuation. Paul had a run-on sentence here. So from verse 3 to verse 14 is the longest sentence in the Bible. And uh, what we see here, verse 3, gives us a summary of the whole sentence, and it gives us incredible truth about who we are. So look at verse number 3 this evening. It says, Blessed be the, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now that, that simple statement right there, that simple verse tells us a lot about who we are in the eyes of God. Now we're going to be looking at not just this verse, but the entire through verse 14 for a couple of weeks. But there's a foundational statement I want to give you that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks. It's your identity statement. This is the identity statement you should have for yourself. And here it is. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father, and who I am is who I am in Him. You're not defined by your social media presence. You're not defined by what other people think of you. You're not defined by what the society may say about you. You are defined by what God says about you. And you are who you are in Christ. So we need to understand who we are in Christ. So as we begin looking at that and knowing who we are, we're going to break down this statement that we see it in verse number three. So who are you in Christ? Well, number one, I am in Christ. Now that's not how verse three begins, it's how verse three ends. But it is the focus of the rest of the sentence all the way down to verse 14. Again, look at verse 3. It said, Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1 says that we have a lot because we are in Christ. Verse 3, we're going to look at all these in the next couple weeks, but verse 3 says that because we are in Christ, we have spiritual blessings. Verse 4 says that because we are in Christ, we have been chosen by Him. Verse 5 says that because we are in Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. Verse 7 says that in Christ we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 9 says that in Christ we have knowledge of God and wisdom and insight. Verse 10 and verse 12 says that in Christ we have an inheritance that cannot be matched. And verse 12 says that in Christ we have our hope. Verse 13 says that in Christ we have been sealed and we are secure. As a follower of Christ, our identity is rooted and grounded in Christ. Everything we are is who we are because we are in Him. Now this, is this isn't just something that Paul teaches in Ephesians. Uh, and there are 27 times throughout the book of Ephesians that Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, or in Him. 
And as you study the rest of Paul's writings, you find that he uses this phrase 164 times. He says we are in Christ or in him. That is the dominant way that Paul saw himself. Paul didn't see himself as a former Pharisee. He didn't see himself as someone who had spent his early adulthood persecuting the church, who had grown up learning the religious system of the Jews and becoming a Pharisee, the Pharisees, and getting a great education. He didn't see himself as someone who had arrived. He saw himself in Christ. He didn't see himself as a great church planner. You know, we always say Paul was the greatest New Testament Christian. Paul didn't view himself that way. Paul viewed himself in Christ. It is the dominant way he sees himself as a believer in Christ. Now, the most well-known verse that we know where he says this is 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, Paul gives a distinction here. He says for us to become this new creature, to us become this new creation, for us to have the old things passed away and become new, we have to be in Christ. That means that there are people who are not in Christ. Everyone in this world is either in Christ or in Adam. I'll show you what I mean. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this passage, Paul gives us a definition of what this phrase, in Christ, means. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse number 21. He says, For by since man came death, and by man came also resurrection of the dead, for as in, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul gives the two groups there. He goes, look, there are some who are in Adam and they're going to die, but there are some who are in Christ and they're going to be made alive. That's the contrast. He contrasts those who are in Christ and those that are in Adam. So what does it mean to be in Adam? Number one, to be in Adam means you're a human being. How many humans we have here tonight? Not enough hands for my, my happiness there. Some of y'all may need to realize you're a human, first of all. But every one of us here are human. You may not feel it right now, but you are. So if you are a human, you are in Christ. That means we are all part of the human race. Now, the problem of the human race isn't the problem of the color of your skin. The problem with the human race is the condition of your heart. The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. To be in Adam means you are separated from God. In Adam, we all die. And that was never God's original intent. God created Adam. God created humanity to enjoy life in a context of a relationship with him. God created us to spend time with him, to fellowship with him, to be with him, to enjoy his presence and enjoy his blessings that's why, that's why evolution versus creationism is such a big deal. If we came from nothing and we're going to nothing and we have nothing, then nothing really matters. But if God made us in his image and God created us with the purpose of knowing him, that means life has meaning. That means life has value. It gives us a sense of identity. God created us for a reason. But Adam and Eve chose 
to sin against God. Let's be honest, Eve did it. Adam was just trying to help her out there. You know, he could have said, you know what, God, I got more ribs. We can make another Eve. See you, girl. Make me some more, but he didn't. He loved her so much. It's a sign of redemption, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But they chose to sin against God. And when they sinned, that sin got passed on to every generation afterwards. When they died, when they sinned, they died spiritually. They lost the ability to have fellowship with God. They lost the purpose for creation. So Paul says all of us are in Adam when we're born. We're all humans. And when he died, we all died. When he came into the world, we all came into the world dead to God and alive to God. So the false teaching of evolution also teaches that we come into the world as a blank slate. We come into the world that, and we're a blank slate and we can be written on, and that's a lie. The Bible says we come into this world dead to God with a nature that is bent on doing the opposite of what God wants us to do. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, for where, for, for, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Every one of us have sinned, and no one taught you how. No one taught you how to sin. You were born knowing how to sin. You know, when you have kids, you don't have to teach them how to be bad. You've got to teach them to be good. You've got to teach them what not to do, that it's not okay to hit people. It's not okay to be selfish. It's not okay to lie. You've got to teach them that the things they're doing are wrong because their nature tells them to do those things. Every one of us have that nature in our, in our nature to sin because we, were, we are in Adam. To be in Adam means I am separated from God because of my sin. And in Adam, I am hopelessly lost. In Adam, I am struggling on earth. In Adam, I am a slave to sin. In Adam, I am guilty. In Adam, I am condemned. In Adam, I am, I am unrighteous. In Adam, I am unholy. In Adam, I am defeated and a sinner. And left to myself, there's nothing I can do to change any of that. In Adam, we all die. But Paul teaches us that there is hope by being in Christ. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It is to be made alive to a relationship with God. It is to become a new creature. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a great exchange took place. That's what, that's what Christianity is all about. Jesus, God, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfectly sinless life. Spent three years teaching he was the Messiah. Then he went to the cross and died a death that he didn't have to die. We were supposed to die. He took our punishment. God, our sin was poured out on him. The wrath of God for all of sin was poured out on him. And he died in our place. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, redeeming us to God the Father and proving that God had accepted his, his sacrifice. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 31. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. God, Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. On the cross... 
Christ stood as our representative. And all I was in Adam was poured out on Christ as my representative. On the cross, Jesus died for me. But he didn't stay dead. He took our sin that we might take his righteousness. By faith, we receive what Jesus has done for us. And we have the very righteousness of God imputed on our account. In Christ, we are justified. I have heard people define justification like this. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. It sounds good, but it's wrong. Justification isn't just as if I'd never sinned. Just See, it's wrong because God looked at Adam before the fall. If God looks at us as if we never sinned, he's looking at us as if we were Adam before the fall. But Adam could sin before the fall. We know that because he did. See, Christ can't sin. Christ could never sin. So God doesn't look at me as if I've never sinned. God looks at me as if I couldn't sin. Now, I know better, and you know better, because you know I sin, and you know you sin. And I know you sin. I've seen your Facebook posts. You people need Jesus, amen? But God doesn't look at us if I've never sinned. God looks at us as if we could never sin. See, we don't have man's best righteousness. We have the very righteousness of God. Look what we have in Adam versus what we have in God. See, in Adam, we were struggling on earth. But in, in Christ, I'm seated in heaven. In Adam, I was enslaved to sin. But in Christ, I am free from sin's power. In Adam, I was condemned. But in Christ, I am innocent. In Adam, I was guilty. But in Christ, I am forgiven. In Adam, I was unrighteous. But in Christ, I am righteous. In Adam, I was unholy. But in Christ, I am holy. In Adam, I was defeated. But in Christ, I am, I am victorious. In Adam, I was a sinner, but in Christ, I am a saint. See, God took all of who I was in Adam and gave me all of who he is in Christ. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians. By faith, we receive all that Christ did for us as our representative, and that great exchange took place where he took our sin and he gave us his Righteousness, And the first thing that Paul wants to teach us in verse 3, and that is, that is the truth that we are in Christ. You are in Christ if you're a child of God. But there's a second truth we want to look at. Not only am I in Christ, but I am a loved and accepted child of the Father. Paul ended verse 3 by saying that we are in Christ, but look again how he started it. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now that I am in Christ, and since God is his Father, that means now God is my Father. Not because I earned it. Not because I deserve it in any way. But God is now my Father because I am in Christ. 1 John 3 says this, says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. See, we sit here tonight as loved, accepted children of God, and there is nothing that we can do to earn it. But because I am in Christ, God now sees me as he sees Christ. So how does he see Christ? He, he told us two times in person 
how he viewed Christ, how he viewed Jesus. You want to know what God thinks of Jesus? Look at his own words. He said it two times. First time in Matthew, and then at the transfiguration, when he looked at Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We are now in Christ, and because we are in Christ, God is our Father, meaning that God sees us as he sees Christ. That means if you are in Christ, you're his beloved child. That means if you are in Christ, he is well pleased with you. Now look, we don't have that standing because of our performance. We have that standing before God because of our position in Christ. John MacArthur says this. He says, God knows how we are. Oh, God knows how we were, how we now live, and how we will live the rest of our lives. He sees everything about us in stark naked reality. Yet he says, I am satisfied with you because I am satisfied with my son to whom you belong. When I look at you, I see him and I am pleased. If you are in Christ, that means God is pleased with you. So don't let the flesh, don't let the enemy, don't let society tell you any different. God sees you in Christ and he's pleased with you. But it gets even better. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 15. He says, for you have not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but if you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, the Greek word that's translated joint heirs there is a, is a compound Greek word. It's two words, one that means heir and the other means together with. That means that you have the same spot on, in the inheritance that Jesus has. That means that everything Jesus has, you have. Everything Jesus is going to get, you're going to get. That's what Paul means in Ephesians 1.3 when he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So what is a spiritual blessing? It is unending positional privileges of God's grace to those who are in Christ. Because I am a joint heir with God, what belongs to Christ belongs to me. That means his riches are my riches. That means his resources are my resources. It means his righteousness is my righteousness. It means his power is my power. Means his privilege is my privilege. Means his position is my position. Means when God looks at me, he looks at me and sees me and loves me and is pleased with me as much as he is with Jesus Christ. Now remember, chapters 1 through 3, Paul gives some encouraging truth about how God sees us. This all sounds great. Chapter 4, he's going to start telling us how we're supposed to live because of that. Doesn't mean you get to live freely and say, well, God sees me as Jesus, so I get to do what I want to do. No, no, no. Paul says, God sees you this way, but because he does, here's how you should live. But where he is, there I am. What he is, I am. What he has, I have. And those are the things that I have. I have those things and I am those things because of my relationship with him. I am in Christ, and I'm a loved and accepted child of the Father. I heard a story several years ago. It was in a sermon 
So I'm sure it's not true. I'm sure it's just a sermon illustration, but it sounds good. There's a story of this wealthy man and his son, and they were very, very close, and they both loved art, and they would go around the world collecting art pieces, Picasso and Rembrandt and, and all these one-day gauze and all these wonderful, beautiful pieces of art. They would collect them and view them, and they just, they, this, it was something they loved to do together. Well, the Vietnam War came, and the son was drafted into the war, and a couple years in, uh, the son was killed in action. So the father gets word that his son has died, and he's just, he's of course destroyed. He's very sad, doesn't know what to do with his life, and he's kind of moping around. And a couple years go by, and he gets a knock on the door. He opens the door, and there's a young man there. The young man says, sir, you don't really know me, but I knew your son. We served together in Vietnam. And the day he died, he died saving my life. In fact, he died saving the lives of dozens of men. I'm here today because of his sacrifice. He says, I don't know if this will bring you any encouragement, any joy or anything, but I wanted to give you something. And so he gave him this package, and the father opened it up, and it was a, a painting of the son. The man said, I know it's not very good, but your, your son always told me how much y'all loved art, so I tried, thought I'd do this for you. And it wasn't a very good painting, but it was, it was cherished by the father. He hung it on his mantle. Whenever anyone would come to see his art, he would show him that first and spend the most time there because it was a picture of his son. Well, years go by and the, the father dies and the son's gone, so there's no one to inherit the, the estate. So his, his estate goes up for auction, especially the art. And people came from all around because they knew about his collection and they were excited about his collection. And so they came to, to get, get some of his art from this auction. And so the auction begins and the auctioneer comes up and he goes, well, the first thing on the auction block is the, the, the picture of the son. It was loved by the father and he wanted this to be the first thing. And no one bids anything. He goes, can we get $100, $100 for this? No one says anything. He goes, $50, $50. And finally people say, we're not here for that. We want the good stuff. Just get rid of that. He says, well, I can't move on till we sell this portrait. Who, who would give me something for this? And in the back, there was a gardener who had been uh, with the family for years, and he loved the father. He loved the son. He said, I'll give $10 for it. He didn't have a lot of money. So the auctioneer says, oh, we can do better than $10. Let me give me $20. And people say, man, just, just give him the picture for 10 bucks and let's move on. So the auctioneer says, okay, $10 going once, going twice, sold, $10 to the man in the back. He starts packing up his stuff and People start getting excited and say, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you packing up? We're here for the good stuff. And the auctioneer says, well, there was a stipulation in the will that I couldn't tell you until now. But the, the owner wanted me to say that whoever got the son got everything else. As a child of God, if we have the son, we have everything. We have it all. Here's what Paul's saying in Ephesians. Because we have the son... We get it all. If you are a child of God tonight, you are in Christ, and you are a loved and accepted child of the Father. You have everything you need.